Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. Monday, September the 21st, I'm your host, Lisa M. Saunders, coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland. This broadcast is being sponsored by Masterminds, LLC, inspiring and empowering people to achieve a greater destiny. This episode is going to be a little different uh, from what we are used to producing. Because of the climate in today's society with all of the police brutality and innocent people who have paid the price with their lives by corruption within the very system that was supposed to be set up to serve and protect its citizens, we decided to bring on someone that was in that very system. And instead of doing what so many other police choose to do, by staying silent, When they see things that they know aren't right, our guest chose to speak up and tell the truth about what he witnessed one night while on the job. Joining us in a few short minutes is is our special guest, Joe Crystal, an ex-Baltimore City police detective who was forced to leave the city he loves after exposing corruption within his department. We will not be opening the phone lines for this uh, particular segment because we want to give our guest time to tell his story and to enlighten us about why others may feel like they can't come forth um, and speak up. So to receive this podcast, it's a free podcast, so to receive it, just simply go to the iTunes store, click on podcast, and type in a date with destiny. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lease, that's L-Y-S-E 101. If you would like to become a sponsor or to get more exposure for your literary work or business, you can send a message via my website, info at yourdestinyawaits.net, or via my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash adatewithdestiny101. Over the weekend, I was blessed with the opportunity to speak with the legendary Frank Serpico, a.k.a. Paco, 
who was the first cop ever to blow the whistle on corruption within the New York City Police Department law enforcement in the late 60s, early 70s. Frank once stated that agencies need to eliminate those who use and abuse the power of the law as they see fit. We must create an atmosphere where the crooked cop fears the honest cop and not the other way around. An honest cop should be able to speak out against unjust or illegal behavior by fellow officers without fear of ridicule or reprisals. Those that speak out should be rewarded and respected by their superiors and not punished. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the acquired ability to move beyond fear. Our guest, Joe Crystal, exemplifies this. Joe is an ex-Baltimore City Police detective that went against the blood-in, blood-out code of the FOP, which is the Fraternal Order of Police. Joe testified um, against one of his fellow officers after he witnessed what we see on a daily basis, police brutality. Earlier this year, Joe had to leave the town he loves because his fellow brethren, who took an oath to uphold the law and to serve and protect the community, threatened him. Joe Crystal is the modern-day Frank Serpico. Their stories are practically one and the same. The only difference is Joe didn't get shot in the line of duty, thank God, and left for dead by his fellow officers. Thankfully, he was able to move out of town with his beautiful wife, Nicole, before things got too out of control. I would like now to welcome Joe Crystal to the show for him to tell his story about what took place and and why, basically. So, Joe, welcome to A Date with Destiny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Joe, for taking the time to be with us this evening. Um, I know by now you've told your story numerous times, but personally, I don't think it can be told enough. Uh, When I saw an interview that you did, I knew I had to reach out to you because of the climate of what's going on within the system and why police brutality is being allowed to take place without punishment. So, Joe, we're going to walk through your story, and hopefully it will inspire other cops who do want to be on the right side of justice and live up to the sworn oath to serve and protect. So first, let's start with why you wanted to be a cop in the first place. What inspired you to want to become a police officer? Well, for one, both uh, both my parents were uh, New York City cops. Uh, it was kind of, I guess, for me, like almost the family business. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's where both my parents even met. And on top of that, I, you know, it's weird when most kids think about, you know, childhood, they think about like a Disney movie, you know, The Lion King or something crazy like that. You know, I kind of grew mm-hmm. up watching, you know, TV cop shows. And, you know, I think of like Beverly Hills Cop when I was a kid and stuff like that. And uh, all I really wanted to ever do was help people. And in my mind, I always thought to myself that if I really wanted to, you know, help people, the best way to do that was being a cop. It was the best way, the best form to be able to help anybody. So that kind of mm-hmm. drove me. I, I could honestly say ever since I was a kid, there was no kind of plan B for me. It was only option A of, you know, being in the being being a cop. Okay. And you, like you said, your mother and your father were both policemen? Yes, ma'am. 
Okay, and so when you decided to do this, um, and then actually when you um, took the oath and you were sworn in and you got your badge and all of that, I know that just made your parents proud and you were so excited and you went in, you know, with how did that how did that feel at that moment? When, you know, once you were sworn in and you, you received your um, badge and your first assignment and all of that, walk us through how that felt. It was uh, it was like a dream come true, you know. I, I remember uh, right before I started the academy, you know, getting my uniform ready and stuff like that. And I remember, uh, you know, going to sleep that night. And, you know, right before I started the academy, I remember feeling like a little kid. You know, like, uh, mm-hmm. felt like almost, you know, if I was a fighter, this was like the fight I trained for my entire life. You know, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was going to I was gonna do whatever I had to do uh, to make it work. And, uh, you know, it, that that in itself was, was just great. And once I actually, like you said, got the badge and stuff like that, it was like, you know, all my hard work paid off. You know, when I when I finally graduated, I graduated receiving my uh, the Commissioner's Award at the Academy. And it just felt like, you know, like destiny, you know, that this was, you know, everything I did in my life was was meant to put me in that position. It was meant to put me in Baltimore where, you know, I could help those people and, you know, things like that. And it was just, I, I guess the best way to say it, ma'am, is it was very surreal. You know, mm-hmm. you think about something mm-hmm. ever since you're a kid, and you know they actually give you and it's just a piece of metal. But you kind of look at it and you say to yourself, you know, wow, you know, I, I finally have achieved this. You know, I finally have, you know, gotten where I wanted to be. Okay, but weren't you in the service before that? Yes, ma'am. You served in the military. Yes, ma'am. That's correct. For six years, I believe you told me when we when we first spoke. So. So when you were in the military, though, and and when you just you know when you finally you know got out of the military, and then you just decided that you were just going to keep going because, like you said, this was a dream for you, and you wanted to do this because in your heart you believed you could make a difference. Yes, ma'am. I'm you know when I joined the military, I remember uh, when I was a kid in high school, you know, talking to my dad one, and uh, you know, my dad told me, asked me, you know, he says to me, hey, what do you want to, you know, what do you really want to do? You know, you're 18 now, you know, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a cop. And he said, you know, he told me, you know, you need more discipline, you know, and uh, that, that's like a conversation that I'll always kind of remember. And me mm-hmm. even joining the, mil- joining the military, everything I did, you know, growing up and joining the military and stuff, it was to gain me experience to be a better cop, to, you know, prepare me that much more so mm-hmm. I could be that much more effective as a police officer. So it was all right. it was all steps. And when I graduated boot camp, I graduated on uh, September 8th, 2001. And uh, I'm from New Jersey originally, so when September 11th happened, I volunteered to work at Ground Zero. And that's mm-hmm. something else that, you know, I remember being around all those cops and stuff, and I remember seeing the camaraderie amongst all the cops. And it just kind of instilled and enforced that much more that, you know, that's what I wanted to do when I was done doing, you know, serving my country and doing my time with the military. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And so here we are in Baltimore. You are now a part of, you know, um, Baltimore City Police. So, Joe, tell us, you know, what happened on that night. Let's let's jump to that because there's so much to your story, and it's such an amazing story. So let's start, you know, with that. Um, when did that exactly, when did that take place? It was in uh, October of 2011. Okay, and I you was, had been uh, on the force how long? I had been on the force for just shy of three years. I had been on the street for uh, just about two years. Okay. 
Okay, so go ahead. So, go ahead with the story. So at at, at the time I was uh I was working uh I was by that time I was already promoted to detective, and uh, mm-hmm. I was uh, working as a uh, narcotics detective in East Baltimore. Um, okay. The, the the craziest part of my story, and I know I always this really doesn't have a whole lot to do with it, but the craziest part about it was I wasn't even supposed to be there that night. I was supposed to have gone home because I had worked earlier in the day, but uh, we had a. Uh, and it, um, a, a detective on our squad whose uh, father used to uh, be the major of internal affairs and the major of the narcotics division that wasn't really a great cop and he couldn't really get his own arrest. So I was told that night I had to stay uh, at work until I got this, this uh, detective, I got this detective in arrest. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's just, uh, you know, kind of goes along with some of the stereotypes that, you know, you might hear from time to time about the numbers game, things of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we're working that night. We see a guy selling drugs right in the middle of, uh, I believe it was uh, um, Biddle Street. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like anything else, we pull up to him. The guy throws the drugs. He takes off running. Uh, I had recently had sprained my ankle, so I wasn't in any uh, position to really chase after him. So I get out, and I stay with the drugs that the uh, suspect threw, and they chase the, the uh, individual that, you know, we believe that we're selling drugs. A couple of minutes into the chase, uh, a 911 call comes out. The officers that were chasing him lost him in an alley. And then uh, the 911 call comes out that a woman says her back door got kicked in. And when that happens, um, the officers, from what I can hear on the radio, they make entry and they arrest them, uh, they arrest the suspect. You know, to, I hate to say it this way, but that's not, you know, really an abnormal thing that would happen if he's lost on a uh, a regular day. That's not even really a crazy story. I would go home and tell my wife about because she's probably heard similar stories like that in the past. Um, mm-hmm. Later on, uh, you know, I they come back. The uh, officers uh, recover the drugs that the, the man threw, and they bring me back to the house where the suspect is. And uh, you know, they're doing his paperwork, getting ready to put him in the paddy wagon and stuff like that. And uh, while they're getting ready to to you know put him in the paddy wagon, or they're getting ready, they're walking him to the paddy wagon. Um, another another man comes to the home, and he's dressed in regular clothes. We don't we don't know who he is or anything like that. And he talks to the sergeant. What we find out is that 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 individual is an off duty officer that works in West Baltimore, and the house that the suspect um, broke into was his girlfriend's home. So oh, wow. you know we find. We find that out. I mean, the guy just had some some horrible luck. I, I'll tell you the truth. If you look at the house, the house that when he kicked in the door, nobody believed, you know, that he meant to kick in this this woman's house. He thought the home was a vacant home. You know, it was in, on Prentice Place. Oh. Most of the homes there, you know, that that's a block that eighty or ninety percent of the homes are vacant. And I even remember oh. in the one of the one of the windows was actually blocked up that you know with brick, so it, it looked very much like it was a vacant home. And the oh, guy wow. just, I guess, in, you know, he just had bad luck. He kicked out to kick in one of the few doors that somebody actually lit. Okay. So he talks to the sergeant, the individual's in the wagon, the wagon's starting to pull away with the suspect. And I'm not paying attention to their conversation. I just kind of turn around. I see my sergeant, you know, shake his head, yes, like in an affirmative way. And he uh, tells, the, uh, tells the individual, you know, okay, uh, I'll take care of it. And then he calls the wagon back to the home. Uh to be honest, you know, no. I was I was confused mm-hmm. as to what was going on. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, ma'am. No, no, no. I was going to say now he the 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 suspect is in the back of the wagon on his way, you know, to the station. 
And yes, he ma'am. makes a call and has them to come back. Yes, ma'am. Okay, go ahead. So he has the wagon to be brought back. And uh, he, you know, the wagon didn't make it fully out of the block. So the wagon just kind of backs back into the block. And he walks up uh, to the wagon. And, you know, I was, uh, I was, I remember being, you know, kind of confused because, you know, Prentice Place was known as a quote unquote, you know, bad block. It's not a lot of lights. And I'm just kind of thinking to myself, you know, what's going on, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So he's bringing the guy back and the guy at first isn't really resisting. And then the guy saying, you know, Hey, get so-and-so like, like I guess friends of his and stuff like that. And he starts yelling out, you know, uh, they're going to beat me up and things of that nature. And Tom, the sergeant I worked for, I had never seen him do anything underhanded. You know, I, right. I, I, I had, you know, trust in the man that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't, you know, there's certain individuals that, if that same situation had gone on just off a of reputation alone, I would have been, I would have said from the start, no way. What what do you what's going on? But with this sergeant, I never I never had a reason not to trust him. Gotcha. So mm-hmm. so he's bringing the guy back, and the guy basically, you know, starts you know resisting because he doesn't want to go back into the house, and he starts kind of anchoring his feet at the steps and stuff like that. And the sergeant tells us, you know, uh, tells me, hey, we need to get him into this house. So the guy, we get the guy comes into the house, and myself and uh, another detective and the the wagon guy are by the vestibule area in the home, and mm-hmm. the uh, um, the off duty officer and my sergeant take him to the back by the kitchen, and you know you hear a loud bang of somebody hitting the floor, and you basically hear the tussle of you know basically what I believed was an assault, okay. and you hear that, and it's one of those things that. In my mind, I know it felt like it was, like, really quick. You know, it felt like it was it was a second. And one thing I could tell you as a cop is anytime you're in any type of bad situation, a, a, a shooting, a fight, or anything like that, in your mind, one of two things happens. Either you mm-hmm. think it went by incredibly quickly or you think it went by incredibly slowly. And whatever you mm-hmm. think it is, it's the opposite. So okay. if you think in your mind that it went by really quick, it was probably it's longer to use it than what you think. If you think it went by really slow, you know it's a lot quicker than what you believe, what you believe it, it happened in. So mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, you hear you kind of hear the tussle, you know, of what, what, what's going on. And when the guy comes out, you know, I noticed him favoring his leg, you know, more. Found out later on he had a broken ankle. He has his shirt ripped open, and uh, they put him in the wagon after, afterwards. And uh, you know they take him they take him out of there. And I found out later on he had to go to the hospital. He was uh, treated for a broken ankle. And uh, I remember coming in the next morning because I was working a case uh, with the feds at the time. And uh, I read the the report of what happened that night because I didn't write it, you know, because we were getting the arrest for somebody else. And the uh, um, officer wrote, you know, that he, he, uh, that they brought the guy back so he could apologize to the woman whose house he broke into, (gasps) which, I mean, you know, that just, doesn't even you know doesn't even pass the smell test right. and uh i remember reading that and just feeling sick about it like you know i just feeling like that much more like it was uh to be a part of something you know i never want to be a part of anything like that mm-hmm. and that itself was sick you know earlier the night of the actual incident i i, I kind of glazed this over um i call on my way home you know the, the the police department they teach you you know oh, if you see something, you know, report it to your supervisor. But they don't really ever go into, there's no real training that, you know, how you go about reporting wrongdoing. Everything's kind of, you know, taught to you if you see something, report it to your supervisor. Well, 
here's a million dollar question. What do you do if you see your supervisor do something wrong? Wow, you know, who yeah. do you who do you go to at that point, you know? Um right. everybody always asks me like a million dollar question. So many people ask me, they say, Well, why didn't you just call internal affairs that night? Well, mm-hmm. internal affairs is, is a place that's open nine to five Monday through Friday. They don't even have like you know, that's not something that's manned twenty four seven. Okay. So, you know, most most of us in the department work at night. So who are you going to contact, you know, to report something like that? I wouldn't even know the first way of going about it. When you walk into internal affairs, you have to know a detective's name to ask for just to get back there to see the detectives. So, mm-hmm. you know, just, just something to kind of like, you know, kind of paint the picture for, you know, the audience a little bit. Um, right. That night I called the supervisor I knew the night of the incident uh, that worked in my same division, and I told him what happened. And, uh, you know, he told me basically that, you know, I needed to keep my mouth shut, that if I spoke up, my career would be done. And uh, mm. he said, you know, if you say anything, he's like, you know, your career is going to be done. They're going to try to get you to rat. Don't say anything. And, uh, you know, that was that, that was that was hard to hear. And deep down inside, I didn't totally believe him. I think, I, I, you know, <laughs> right. like anything else, I always thought there would be something to be said. But mm-hmm. I, I didn't think, you know, the exact I, – I, I mean, I've said it to you, you know, when we've talked previously – I thought it was somewhat exaggerated. Right. Um, and uh, I gave it about a week. And uh, when I basically found nothing happened, was happening to the uh, um, officers who, you know, took place in that assault, I uh, I uh, met with a state attorney that I was that my wife and I were friends with. And uh, I basically had to, felt like I had to go the route of I tried to report it as a cop, and that didn't go anywhere. So I basically tried to go the route of saying, hey, I'm going to try reporting this almost as a private citizen on a Sunday when I'm off of work outside of the normal realm. And uh, I went to a state attorney I knew when I reported to her about what had transpired. And that's how the incident actually came out in the first place. Well, Joe, no, so, okay, when we spoke previously, I mean, again, I'm still, every time you know, I hear this story, it just blows my mind. So at this point, when you try to tell them, you know, what had happened and you weren't hearing anything, what made you continue to push forward with it instead of just saying, okay, you know what, I, I, I can't, I can't do this, I'm not going to go, you know, I just want to, just, we're just going to let it slide and maybe, you know, by osmosis, you know, something will happen. What just made you continue to go and do, you know, to, to do what's right? Well, I mean, for one, you know, what happened that night was wrong. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm a big proponent of, you know, everything needs to be fair for everybody across the board. If if okay. I was there and that was a, a regular individual and I happened to walk into a house and, you know, I see and I saw somebody, you know, beating a handcuffed suspect, you know, I wouldn't think twice of arresting that individual. And to me, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like as cops, you know, we all need to be held to that same – we, I believe we need to be held to a higher standard than the average person, but at a minimum we need to be held to the same standard. And right. I just didn't okay. want to be part of anything anything like that. You know, um, that's not mm-hmm. why I became a cop. I didn't become a cop to, to get street justice. You know, I became a cop right. because uh, I, wanted, I wanted to get, you know, real justice because I believed in the system. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I just didn't, you know, I, you know, man, when there, there were so many different parts to it, you know, um, when I read that report the next day, when I saw nothing was happening, you know, I just kind of felt sick about it. And to this day, I sometimes, you know, will ask myself a thousand times, you know, 
right, huh, everything you know now, hindsight being 2020, how, what do you do different? And mm-hmm. it's just one of those things. I, I, I still, I mean, I still don't know how I would have really handled it any differently than how I handled it. Right. Um, you know, I, and it's just one of those things that they don't, tra- you know, they train you for for everything. You know, oh, if you get you get a call for this, how do you handle it? And blah blah blah. But you know, these are the things that you don't get trained for. There's no training okay. on it whatsoever. They give you training for shooting somebody, training for you know if you get into a fight with somebody, training for if you get into you know a, a person on the street uses foul language to how you should handle it in a defusive situation. But they don't give you training on you know what do you really do when you see you know real corruption. They don't you don't get that type of training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is that your, in your opinion, is that why you feel as though more cops don't come forth because a they're they just don't have the training to, or b they don't have the courage to, or both a and b, so, you know, from mm-hmm. from from since you know I've had I've had uh, officers actually come to me um, since you know I left, and even when I was kind of towards the end of my career there about different things, and. Um, you know, they were, you know, they told me about, you know, not ne- not necessarily a person getting beat, but, you know, like, I, you know, I had an officer come to me one time, um, you know, giving, just to give an example. Um, he overheard some officers, uh, you know, in Baltimore uh, speaking and making fun of uh, another officer's sexual, you know, the, the, their sexuality. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he basically said to me, he said, you know, what do you think I should do? about it, I said, you know, I would I would say something about it, you know, uh, because that, that type of thing's not right, and that, you know, that could down the line become a safety issue. That's nobody's business. And, you know, the guy told me, he said, look, man, I got kids. He's like, you know, I got a family. He's like, you know, you, you've been a good friend to me, but he's like, you know, I can't afford to end up like how you ended up, you know, losing, you know, oh, being wow. forced out of the apartment and stuff like that. So I think, I think more of it is out of fear, you know. Okay. Um, there's this, you know, this mentality of, you know, us against the world, you know, uh, and it's somehow, you know, police somehow believe, I think sometimes that we could police ourselves. Um, Mm. and, you know, we'll say things like, you know, that's not a big thing. Don't worry about this or something like that. Deep down inside, I think, I think it's a fear thing that, you know, if you come forward, your career is done. If you come forward, you know, you're not going to be accepted, you know, um, you're going to be forced out and things of that nature. And, And I think that's the, the the biggest biggest issue as to why people don't come forward. Mhm, mhm. So, and it's like a gang mentality, um, <laughs> pretty much. And I think we, you know, we we talked about that before because that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Um. Actually, I remember when uh I was going through it, you know, during the whole my retaliation thing, and uh, I had gone a couple times without getting uh backed up on the street. I called for backup one time, and nobody came. Um, I had another in- instance where, you know, I got into a, a foot pursuit and, uh, when I called it out over the radio, nobody from my squad showed up and, uh, wow. you know, th- like things like that. I, I even had a, uh, a supervisor come to me once, uh, the two officers were indicted and, uh, they tried to get me to forge, you know, paperwork, uh, in it, in what I believed was an attempt to try to get me, you know, removed from testifying, um, you know, in the, in the case. And when I went to uh, the FOP about it and, you know, was telling them what was going on, you know, and I told them, look, you know, you guys need to move me at this point off the street for a little bit while this blows over because, you know, I'm in fear for my safety. I made it a point, you know, to tell them, you know, I'm in fear for my safety. And, um, 
with the uh, what I was told by the FOP president at the time was, you know, people were mad at me because they believed, you know, the VC group, you know, which is now, you know, in Baltimore, the ceasefire group or the special enforcement group, you know, they that they were blood in and blood out, and that's why people were mad at mm-hmm. me. And that was their that was their analogy, not mine. And uh, you know, I I think it is, you know, amongst the people that do that do wrong, I think it is that type of mentality. I believe deep down inside, most people want to do the right thing and they want to do their job the way they're supposed to do it. I think it's just that, you know, the the few, you know, somehow, in, maybe because of the positions they're in and things like that, they instill fear into the many. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes back to the quote um, when I quoted what Frank Serpico said. And thank you, by the way, because you made that connection happen for me, um, and I really appreciate that. He's an amazing, um, amazing person who continues to fight on the side of justice um, at 79 years old. So I just think that, you know, his his story is is amazing. But he said, you know, and I quote him, um, we must create an atmosphere where the crooked cop fears the honest cop and not the other way around. Um, And that's exactly what seems to, you know, still to this day. And now this was in the, you know, what, late 70s, and here we are in 2015, and, and seems like nothing too much has really changed. No, and and I agree with that too. And you know, I, when I uh, when I got the the opportunity to speak to Mr. Serpico, this mm-hmm. was a uh, it was a, a chilling experience, you know, just to be able to talk to, you know, somebody like that. And uh, yeah, you know, so much of what he said that you know was kind of crazy. You know, uh, he had read a previous article that was uh, you know published about me, and he had reached out to me. And uh, before he even kind of we we got into talking about all the specifics, I remember saying to him at one point, he said, you, like, you know, he I'm getting ready to kind of go into my story, and he told told me, you know, I've talked to people all over the country that have been in similar situations like you, and he's like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like these departments work off a playbook. He's like, eventually they're going to do something to try to discredit you, and then to put just kind of wow. push you out the back door and stuff like that. And then when I started mm-hmm. telling him my story about how, yeah, well, towards the end, the department even tried to investigate me for something that was out of policy, you know, that wasn't even a policy at the time, and stuff like right. that. He was like, it's just, and when I got to that point, it was like. You know, for a man that's almost 80 years old, he jumped on it like, you know, with cat-like reflexes. And was like, see, you know, I told you, that's that's exactly what they do. Mm-hmm. They, they're going to try to, you know, uh, paint you in a bad light to try to save them. It's all it's all persona, you know. It's like, I bet you if you went in my internal affairs file now, I never had a sustained complaint or anything else like that. But if you looked at my file now, they'd probably have it, you know, they'd probably chop, chop down right. so many trees just to try to, you know, give the appearance that, I wasn't I wasn't a great cop or something to that effect. Right, right, right. And you were also uh threatened even more um uh with some things that um they did to you and which actually kind of made you say, "Okay, this is it. You know, I've got to go. We got to go." Can yeah, you well, tell us a little bit in, about that? Back in uh I believe it was November of 2012, um you know, it was right after the officers were uh, indicted. It was about a, about a month after they were indicted. Um, I had been uh, moved around the department. They were trying to, you know, take my detective shield away from me and stuff like that. And um, the day after Thanksgiving that year, um, my wife and I came home and uh, found a, uh, a dead rat on the windshield of my car. And, uh, you know, that was a, uh, that was, again, I guess, a chilling experience, you know, and it was one of those things I didn't really know how to 
most most things in life, you know, it's like you, you something happens and you react. And that was like one mm-hmm. of those instances that I remember being there with my wife, and I'm trying to kind of act, you know, like the man about it, and you know, not really be right. act like I'm that upset about it, and just try to almost laugh it right. off and know, hey, honey, you know, somebody put this on our car and blah blah blah. Um, but at the same time, you know, the other side of me, you know, almost at this point, like a child, I, you know, I almost myself want to kind of break down about it and, you know, right. just like scream or cry and just say, you know, like Jesus, you know, like I, I can't believe it's coming to this. It's, you know, people are coming to my to my house now, and right, um, right. You know, that's after you know I went to the FOP. That's after I tried going to uh, the state attorney's office. That's uh, you know, I mean, I, I felt like I had exhausted so many so many things. I just felt like I was. I was in a no-win situation at that point. And wow. uh and of course you can't go and tell them, look, they put, you know, they're threatening me, they're intimidating me, and you have nobody to tell. Who can you turn to? Well, and I mean that was the thing was that I ended up, my wife and I we called the police. Um the police come to my house. Um and you know, they 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 actually call it when they speak to me about like everything that's going on, they actually deem it as witness intimidation. Um uh-huh. Baltimore Police Department never speaks to me about it. I have to go to Internal Affairs to tell them about it, even though if you read the police report, it clearly says that they forwarded it to Internal Affairs. So you would think something mm-hmm. like that would be like a, a major, a major, you know, incident that they're going to get, they're going to get on board with it and do something about it right away. Um, right. And you know, they, they don't, um, you know, I end up have to go into them about it and they say, well, we're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to look into this, blah, 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 blah. Well, mm-hmm. the number one thing I can tell you as a cop is, and this is any crime, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a shooting victim, a robbery victim, you know, uh, a rape victim, anything like that, you know, an investigation starts with your, with the, with the, you know, victims, with the victim's statement, you know, so until I make a statement about something saying, hey, yeah, I, w- I was robbed here or whatever, the police department's not going to investigate it. They didn't investigate my situation until 2014 after, you know, it got out in the media about what had happened to me. Then at that time, wow. you know, um, commissioner, I guess our old commissioner, commissioner Bass at the time was saying, well, now we're going to investigate it. Now we're going to get to the bottom of this. Well, guess what? Now it's two years later. Everybody's kind of dug into their stories that much more. The statute of limitations have run out of it. So at that point, because, you know, we're governed by the law enforcement officer bill of rights at that point. So, you okay. know, for interdepartmental things, well, you have a year and a day to, you know, to notify an individual that they're being investigated for an incident. Well, you're talking about being over two years. You're well past statute of limitations because I reported it to Internal Affairs, and they chose never to take a statement from me. They chose never to uh, to investigate mm. it. So the statute of limitations basically ran out on it, and that was, you know, wow. Basically, you know, basically a sham. They they didn't do that, but then when I was involved in an accident, you know, they decided, oh yeah, you know what, we're going to investigate you now for an accident that was deemed not your fault. Right. Do you want to talk about the accident? Uh, I, I don't mind. I mean, I've, I have no issue with talking about it. If, uh, you know, that's where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Let's hear about the accident. So uh, back in June of uh, 2014, I, I was given a, a take-home car by the police department. Uh, I used to respond to uh, most of the shootings and homicides in the city, and uh, you know, determine if there was uh, any type of uh, gang nexus for them and uh, things of that nature in the unit I was at, they, you were on call, so you were given a take-home vehicle. During this mm-hmm. time, the department was kind of bouncing me around from unit to unit. I was at, you know, they had me one, one weekend they told me, or one week they told me, you're working 
you know, uh, 7 p.m. to 3 in the morning looking at alleys to make sure nobody's breaking into uh, any of these houses. And then the next day, you know, they're like, you're going to work 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. and you're going to watch this uh, this little uh, path by the woods and make sure that, you know, nobody walks out of there that, because there was a rape over there or something like that. So they're just bouncing me around anywhere they can throw me at this point, um, trying to find mm-hmm. a place to put me. And, uh, you know, I'm, my wife didn't particularly like when they were moving me around. She felt unsafe living in, just staying at the house by ourselves. Usually I work during the day. She didn't feel comfortable staying there at night um, mm-hmm. when I wasn't there. Um, so a lot of times she would ask to be to stay at my in-law's house. And um, mm-hmm. I went and grabbed dinner, and something that transpired, my in-laws weren't able to co- uh, weren't able to meet us, and uh, my wife was going to ride back with them. So I'm just giving my wife a ride home as I'm uh, on my way to work passing, and uh, I get rear-ended on, uh, you know, Route 43 right near, uh, right near White Marsh. So, uh, mm-hmm. I get slammed, I get rear-ended by a, uh, dually F-250 truck, and, uh, the accident's obviously, you know, not my fault. I was rear-ended. And, uh, I notify my commands. Uh, I pay to get the car towed to, you know, the, the city yard that they wanted to go to and stuff like that. Less than a week later, I get brought up on charges at Internal Affairs, but, they don't actually specify any general order I'm in violation of. They don't actually accuse me of anything when they give me my paperwork. And they assign a sergeant to investigate the incident that works directly for the uh, deputy police commissioner. And, you know, to be honest, it felt like a setup. And uh, mm-hmm. when I called the FOP for my representation, the FOP tells me that they'll get somebody else to represent me, but they're not going to represent me because there's too much going on with me at the time. And that they talked to the FOP president, the FOP president told them it's in their best interest not to represent me. So, wow. you know, they, they, they turned their backs on me too. And, mm-hmm. uh, when, when all that happened, you know, it really made me feel like I was being targeted, you know, and, and I know what mm-hmm. that feels like because you know what some of the department does. You think a guy, if they think a guy's a bad guy, that he's out there doing shootings or homicides, they put, what do they do? They put a detective squad on him and they say, Hey, you know, put, we need to, we need to investigate this guy. We think he's selling drugs, put a case on. And wow. I kept asking internal affairs. I said, you know, I don't understand what I'm being investigated for. And mm-hmm. it's just like anything else. You know, if I arrest you man for disorderly conduct and you say, and I'm, you know, because part of the, the way you place a person under arrest, there's a part of, you know, of understanding that that's that's a term that you have to the person has to understand what they're being arrested for. So if mm-hmm. I say to you, ma'am, I'm arresting you for disorderly conduct, and you say I don't understand, I have to be able to explain to you, ma'am, you did I witnessed you do X, Y, and Z. Law states mm-hmm. that if you do X, Y, and Z, and a crowd forms and the crowd becomes unruly, that's disorderly conduct, ma'am. That's what you're being arrested for. Well, I'm going to internal affairs and I'm telling them, you know, sir, Sarge, I don't understand, you know, what you wrote here, you're not accusing me of anything. You're saying you're just investigating an accident broadly. It was investigated by Baltimore County, by Baltimore City, both deemed not my fault. What are you investigating? I don't understand. And he's like, well, I'm investigating. And all they would tell me was I'm investigating the accident. And it was so, it, it was just at the point where the writing was on the wall. I, I was moved around mm. so much that I mm-hmm. knew that they didn't want, you know, nobody really wanted to work with me anymore. Now they're investigating me, you know, and stuff like that. It, it was just to the point where I didn't really have a choice. You know, I, I left the department. Yes, I resigned myself, but I didn't feel like it was, yeah. I was given a choice. I was feel like, I felt like I was being right. pushed out. You felt defeated at that point. Oh, a hundred percent. It was, uh, 
yeah. I'll say that the the day I turned in, uh, you know, my like I turned in my stuff and, uh, you know, it was it was uh, that was the hardest day I could uh, I could ever yeah. remember in my life. It was, uh, yeah. you know, because I worked so much that that department was, you know, was like my life. It was, you know, my I, I didn't mind going to work because I loved what I did. You know, even when all the right. other stuff was going on, I hated being messed with and I hated, you know, like have to fear and like, you know, for not getting backed up and stuff like that. But the job itself, I loved. Mm-hmm. And it was just so hard to kind of give all that, give all that to them and just, you know, and just leave, especially when feeling that, you know, at the end of the day, I felt like I, I had still done the right thing for, you know, what we were supposed to do as far as, you know, our oaths and things of that nature. Right. And from what, you know, I had a conversation, a nice conversation with your wife, and she was sharing with me um, that you were the type of officer that really uh, had a heart for the people, you know, you worked in the communities, and even though you may have had to arrest a person, you know, even after that, you know, the, they still trusted you because the person that you arrested knew, you know, what they were being arrested for. Um, and so they didn't, like, you know, think that you were this bad cop just out to just to get a bus just, you know, just because. So, and she gave me so many instances of, you know, people just testifying to that fact that, you know, no, Joe is, you know, he's one of the good guys. And and how many people actually really, you know, uh, trusted you because, you know, again, there's no trust between the police and the, and the um, communities. It's just no trust there. Um, no, I, and it I sounds agree. like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, go ahead. Well, I was, was going to say, you know, recently, uh, when I was when I was uh, working, um, you know, I made an arrest one day of uh, somebody that actually played a character on the, the show The Wire, and uh, mm-hmm. him and I actually became you know friendly afterwards. You know, uh, um, you know, he he actually even wrote something on the internet about me, uh, you know, a comment in an article or something like that, and said you know that I arrested him you know years ago uh, for something, and that I was you know honest with him and I was nice to him the whole time, and you know he he went on. It was actually one of the nicest things I I ever you know saw anybody read and he actually you know just to me it was so humbling all the stuff he said you know he said that it was the first time he said that he was in the back of a police car you know getting ready to go to central booking but he almost felt like it was a customer service you know that i treated him with respect Mm -hmm. the whole time you know uh and things like that he said you know and he said in in there he said i've been arrested before cop has never treated me the way that you know uh officer crystal treated me and uh Mm -hmm. you know it was one of those things that you know to this day him and i still still are on uh friendly terms you know where uh Oh, Facebook awesome. friends and things like that. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if I saw – there were times I would be working. I'd see him at and, you know, we would uh, – you know, he would stop and talk to me. Hey, man, how are you doing? I'd ask him how his kids were doing, you know, stuff like that. And it was just one of those things that it was uh, it was uh, really nice. You know, that's it's things like that that, I, you know, you became a cop for. You know, you, you want to help right. people. And I used to tell people all the time when, I'd, uh, when I would arrest them, I'd say, look, man, you know, this is, it's not – it's not anything personal. You know, when I work drugs, I used to tell people all the time, look, man, you know, if you're going to sell drugs, you you understand that this is this is what the game is. You know, it's like a game of mm-hmm. cop and cops and robbers. My job is to catch you. Your job is for me not to catch you. You know, most of the right. days you're going to win. <laughs> this is the one day that I beat you. And, right. you know, a lot of guys would just yeah, say, yeah, I like you know, that you're analogy. right. And, yeah, and stuff like that. I mean, that, it is. And, you know, that's one of the things I used to tell people, too, and, I, like, you know, especially younger guys when I used to try to, you know, 
if somebody was looking for help, you know, or they were kind of on the edge, you know, because most of the people that sell drugs there, you understand that, you know, they're doing it because, you know, of, so, you know, soci, uh, sociological, like, uh, reasons, you know, they, they, you know, people tell me they're broke. That's the only way that they know how to make money and stuff like that. And, you know, mm-hmm. I would tell them sometimes, I'd say, you know, when I'd give them that analogy about the cops and robbers thing, you know, I'd say, you do realize that the odds are always skewed in my favor. And the guy, mm-hmm. and one of this one time somebody asked me, they said, well, what do you mean? I said, I said, you do, you, if you, if you sell, I was like, if I work five days in a week and you work five days in a week. I said, mm-hmm. your job is to, is to sell drugs. My job is to catch you, right? And he's like, and the guy was like, yeah. And I said, so for four days, let's say four out of five days, you beat me, okay? So you might be better at selling drugs than I am at being a cop and catching you. But it only takes that one time for me to catch you, and that's something you have to deal with for the rest of your life. If I don't wow, catch yeah. you, I still go home. I still get paid. I said, if I catch you that day, that's something that you got to deal with for the rest of your life. And when I said it to him like that, the guy was like, you know, wow, that's a really good point. I never thought of that. One. And mm-hmm. I just said, I was like, you know, that's why it doesn't, I was like, it doesn't pay, man. I was like, no matter what, no matter how good you are, you know, sometimes right. you're just not lucky. Right. Right. That is so true. That is real. That's so true. Um, wow. You know, um, I was as you were saying that, I was thinking of another story that you shared with me that I would like for you to share with our listening audience, too, because this gives us an insight as to how, you know, the, the good ones are, are treated just for doing their jobs. And when you shared, I would like for you to share the story of, um, you know, when you flew in to receive an award. Okay, and what fair. happened um, when you came in and, and, you know, so I'm not even going to go for but I want you to just set it up, you know, and, and tell us what happened when you were supposed to be honored. Well, um, right before I left the department, um, I was working overtime one day in East Baltimore. And uh, my old partner, uh, you know, is one of my best friends, we're, uh, we're getting ready to go to work, and he tells me, you know, all right, hey, I'm going to go buy a bottle of water real quick. Do you want one? I'm like, yeah, sure, man. I'd appreciate it. That'd be great. Thanks. You know, and uh, he walks into a store, and a woman comes out saying the store is being robbed. The guy comes out of the store, gun in hand, wearing a mask, and uh, my partner draws draws his gun on him and um, tells him to get on the ground. In the confusion of everything, people from the store come running out, and my partner kind of breaks his concentration for a split second and looks up at the people, and the guy takes off running. And uh, calling it out over the radio, I'm still at the office actually waiting for him to come back to pick me up. I grab keys to a car and I just, you know, run out there because I recognize his voice. Uh, and I run out there and love my partner to death, but man can't run to save his life. So uh, mm-hmm. I go, out, you know, the guy, the guy takes off running. Um, and long story short, I end up, ca- I end up catching him. Uh, recognized from some of his tattoos that uh, he was a member of uh, the, the blood, uh, the blood street gang. Mm-hmm. And uh, I end up, uh, you know, we end up catching him for the armed robbery. Not only does he, you know, admit to that, he admits to being a, a member of the gang, and he admits to something like maybe 12 other robberies that he did in the city and in Baltimore County. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 you know you, you're able to do something like that. That's a, that's a great day of work, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, they put us all in for, an, for awards, and um, at this time I already left the department, and I find out that I was being uh, given an award. Uh, you know, for my role in it, all the officers that were involved are receiving awards. 
So I don't actually receive the letter, but I'm friends with all the guys that are receiving those award, that award for that, that one uh, incident. So they tell me about it. And to myself, just that it was important for me to go for a couple of reasons. I felt that it was after the riot, stuff like that. And I felt that it was good that other cops, you know, kind of, kind of saw me that, you know, anything negative I'm saying maybe about the agency it has nothing to do with those officers that, that do great work. I still mm-hmm. believe that most of those cops are good. And then at the same time, you know, I push for, you know, the department to bridge the gap between the community and, and uh, the police department. Well, how about I lead by example? I feel like I was wrong by this department, but you know what? I'm going to be the bigger man. I'm going to go there. I'm going to shake commissioner Batch's hand, you know, man to man, you know, despite when I think of his leadership or what he did to me, or what he did to others and when he was a commissioner in Long Beach, uh, California, I'm going to go there, I'm going to mm-hmm. shake his hand, I'm going to accept my award, and we're, going to be, we're all going to be bigger men about it for that one night. And mm-hmm. um, we get there, I get there, my wife's there, um, you know, a former mayor, uh, Sheila Dixon, uh, attended as my guest, um, and uh, they, they do basically like a roll call to make sure everybody's there that's re- supposed to be receiving the awards. Uh, for when they call them up. No, wait a minute. Let me so, wait, let me interrupt you for a second, Joe. Let me interrupt you for because you you weren't living in Baltimore at the time. You had to fly in for this, right? Yes, that's correct. I took uh, took some time off work and I flew in. Uh, okay. Uh, I flew I flew from uh, Florida back to Baltimore for it. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. So um, they do a roll call. They make sure you know people are in attendance, and then they call the. Um, there were five of us that were receiving an award for that one incident. My my old partner, who's the sergeant now and four other guys. So they call the four of us over, and they say, we need to speak to you after this roll call. And uh, the, the lieutenant pulls us aside and says, well, listen, uh, in an effort to save time, we're going to uh, – uh, we're not going to call you guys to the stage to receive your award. You guys can come after the ceremony to receive your award. And all the other guys were crushed. You know, one guy flew family in from uh, – I think it was Ohio. Uh, flew his grandparents in from Ohio to receive that award. Uh you know, another guy, you know, was talking about he, he took his – he has a, a young a, a young son. He took his son to the store to buy him a suit, you know, to come attend the event and stuff like that. And even the, the ceremony – the invitation we got said, you know, come be recognized with your family. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so they tell us, you know, that we can't we can't go there. But they said – they tell us, don't worry, we'll call your names up. So when they read the, the, um, the award – they only read the sergeant's name out and doesn't, and they don't read out anybody else's name that was a part of it. They just uh, mm-hmm. totally keep our keep our names out of it. And uh, I remember uh, Mayor Dixon at the time uh, telling uh, telling me, you know, she actually apologized, and you know, she she was vocal in the fact that, you know, she felt that the way, you know, Commissioner Bats acted was pathetic. Um, mm-hmm. In that instance, and uh, she actually wouldn't even stay for the rest of the ceremony. She left right after that. Uh, now she wasn't no, she mayor was, at the time, though, right? No, I, I just referred to her as mayor. She this was yeah, this was right. recent. This was this past. Uh, I think it was this past. Was it June, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, I think it was this past okay. June. So, okay. So know, she okay. hadn't announced that she was going to run or anything like that yet. Um, mm-hmm. But I just always refer to her as mayor because uh, she was the mayor when I got my uh, award, and I remember her giving me uh, my certificate and my award at, at my graduation, and she was the mayor at the time mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you know, I always refer to her that way, but she she didn't even stay for the rest of it. She was uh, she she was actually very upset, and she kept apologizing, uh, you know, for the department, even though she had nothing to do with it. Right. And, uh, right. You know, they did that. Not only did they do that to me, I felt I felt bad because I I knew deep down inside that the department wouldn't have done that to the other individuals if I wasn't there. You know, it gotcha. was just a matter of the, it was just a matter of fact that 
they didn't want to try to portray me as this, you know, bad officer or something like that. But then, you know, um, give me an award for doing a great job and helping close, you know, 12 robbery cases. They didn't want to have a picture of, you know, at the time, you know, they were trying to, you know, uh, flag my certification and things like that. They didn't want to have a a picture of the commissioner shaking my hand and giving me an award and, and, Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So they, uh, you know, they they told us that they couldn't do it because of time constraints, and uh, you know that was it. And it was uh, that was another kind of disheartening experience because, you know, I felt after everything it would be a great opportunity to kind of show us all as a uh, as bigger people, you know, lead by right. leading by example. Right, right. You know, I I've read something, Joe, where you quoted something that your parents told you. I don't know whether it was before you became a cop or while you were a cop, but it just kind of touched me. Um, you said that, I don't know if it was your mom or your dad, but they they told you that you're a man before you're a cop. What does that mean exactly? Well, something that's actually something my mom used to always tell me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was becoming a cop, uh, you know, my mom, uh, my mom used to tell me, you know, a handful of things and always tell me, you know, uh, you know, it's not like what it's like on TV and things like that. But when I was uh, getting ready to go to field training, so this is kind of like as I was uh, getting through the academy and stuff like that, she she used to she always kind of tried to pound in my head because I used to go home and visit her on weekends and stuff. She used to tell me, you know, remember something. You're, you're going to have your gun. You're going to have your badge. You're going to have your uniform. But you're always going to be a man first. You're a man mm-hmm. before you're a cop. And, you know, what mm-hmm. she always meant by that was, you know, there that at the end of the day we're all people. You know, you have to, the people, even if I'm making an arrest of those people, I have to view them as people. I can't view them as, you know, criminals or animals or anything else. Those are, those are, they're they're people first. And we're Mm -hmm. all people. We all deserve the same rights. We're all supposed to be treated the same. You know, I'm supposed to, you know, serve and protect the people. And that, you know, that goes for me, my family and everybody else. And we're, we're, the idea is that, you know, we're all the same. We're all the same, the you know, the void of, you know, not depending on race or anything else. We're all people before we're anything else. And, right, it's uh, not the us against them mentality. Exactly, 100%. And that's just yeah. something that she used to, she she uh, she always used to kind of drive into me. And that's, and that's you know, even going back that night, you know, you asked me the question, you know, why did you do what, what you did? Well, the guy, like, you know, let's be honest, you know, the guy that was selling drugs and broke into that woman's house, he wasn't this, you know, this great guy or anything like that. But at the end of the day, he was a man and we're people first. You know, when they made that decision to bring him in and, and you know, do that to that, do that to him, that's not a decision that you're making as a cop. That's a decision you're making as a man. Gotcha. And, you know, wow. you, you know, if you make that decision, you need to be held accountable for making that decision. Right, right. So in your opinion, let's talk about uh, just briefly, um, and I want to hear, you know, your words, um, what you think about the Freddie Gray case. And when you saw that, um, you know, by you not being here in in Baltimore, I know that you, you know, witnessed, uh, you saw it over and over on TV and you saw the riots that were, you know, took place and how the city handled the riots. But, you know, you, you saw what happened. Okay, and um, they've already said that there's no seat belts in the back of these paddy wagons. Um, they just throw them in there, you know, whatever. But in your opinion, what did you see from, you know, from a cop's perspective? 
Um, as far as the, Fred, the actual incident of Freddie Gray, um, I, I looked at that like a, a ball dropped previously by Commissioner Bath. And I understand that my situation and the Freddie Gray situation are two vastly different things. Okay. Different. Yes, they but, are. Mm-hmm. But uh, my thing is this. You, how do you count yourself as a reformer, okay, that you're here to change mm-hmm. things for the better and stuff like that? Well, in my situation, you have an individual, that you, you had cops pull a man out of a wagon against his will and assault him, okay? Mm-hmm. And then they put him back in the wagon and stuff like that. Well, if you're a true, if you're a true reformer, why not look into, you know, body cameras aside, putting a camera in the back of those wagons that, that record to, to avoid things like that happen. You know, why mm-hmm, did those, those mm-hmm. individuals think that was okay to do that? They thought it was okay to do that because there's no cameras back there. Nobody, they don't know what condition he went in when they put him in the wagon the first time. If they stop him, take him out and put it back in, you know, we could get away with that. So, right. you know, my, my, first, my first thought when I viewed that, and I just think it's happened to be human nature, is you kind of think of your situation and how it ties into that. And that was the first thing mm-hmm. I thought about was that you know they they missed a major they missed a major opportunity for by not um, by right. not adding cameras to the backs of those wagons you know mm-hmm. uh, previously that I mean to me that was just that that was just a common sense thing um, as far as right. the, the the rest of it goes you know look obviously obviously something went awry with with the with the situation um, right the the biggest issue that they're gonna that they're gonna have is that you know we don't know because I don't know all the evidence that the state attorney's office is playing it very close to the vest. And I mean, nobody really knows much of any, you know, what they have or anything else or what exactly mm-hmm. trans, you know, what exactly transpired, how he hurt himself. And the issue is, is that you're going to have, and it's just what officer is going to want to come forward and speak about what they saw that went wrong after, you know, right. even just after, you know, you know, my situation, you're not going to have that. And that's the, the main problem with policing. You, you, it goes back to like what you the point you brought about about Mr. Serpico. How do you how do you get to the bottom of things? How do you want to bring real change when people when cops have to be fearful of coming forward to say what they saw? Right. Right. Because right, you know, right. let's 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 yeah. let's not twist this either. If you know, with my situation when I testified against those cops, one cop got forty five days in jail, the other cop got probation and was allowed to retire and keep his pension and stuff like that. You know, this is a situation where a man died, so somebody more than likely is right. going to go to jail for it. Well, right. what do you think is going to happen to those officers if they just saw something possibly go awry and they come forward and report it? You know, their, their careers are done. Right. So it's And basically the bottom line is to protect the officer's career. I mean, that's really what we get from that. It's like no matter what, keep quiet. Blood in, blood out, I mean, right? And to a, to, to a degree, it's almost, you know, and, and – you know, this. I had a conversation with somebody about this, and it just kind of came up, and it was kind of said to me, you know, you think about it, if, you know, let's say one of the officers did witness something. You know, they weren't a part of it. They just happened to kind of witness it. They didn't realize what was going on at the time, and then they found out this happened to Mr. Gray. Okay? They said, mm-hmm. you know, if they come forward and speak about it, you know, their career is done. You know, it, it, right. in some ways it's almost worth the guy, the guy, you know, rolling the dice, you know, and, and, you know, hoping that he comes out of it okay so he still has a future. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't agree with what he was saying, but, I, you know, I understood, you know, when he was talking about the reasoning behind it. I, I, I could see where somebody would make that point, not saying that they were right about right. it. You gotcha. could see somebody's train of, train of thought. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and that's pretty sad. That's, again, it goes back to, you know, leadership. You know, it starts at the top, and, and they need to, you know, start to really 
do something um, uh, about this. Now, you you mentioned this. Go, let's go back to the body cameras because that was one of my question questions to you. Now, will body camera body cameras will they really make a difference? And um, what's to stop? You know, like they are they're wearing the camera, they get this stuff on camera. So what's them what's to stop them from taking the cameras and you know tampering with the footage on the camera? Will they really make a difference? Well, usually the way it works with most cameras, and you know, I don't, I haven't worked on the department with it. This is just some research I've done and reading about it and stuff like that. The the you don't actually have footage to your body to your to your footage of your body camera. That's stored in a separate hard drive somewhere. Say that again. You don't have. Somewhere. Say that again. You don't actually. Like, if I have a body camera on me, mm-hmm. I can't like go to my car and just go back and delete that footage. That's kept on a oh, separate okay. hard drive and stuff like that. So okay. that that's the idea. Now, do I think that they could work and they could help? I absolutely think so. I think though that they need to be across the board for everybody. My opinion would be that every officer, um, you know, of every of every uh, every unit, whether you be a detective, an officer, you know, everything like that, you should have you should be forced to wear a body camera because okay. you know you. Can, I wouldn't go the route of saying, well, all my patrol officers are going to wear body cameras. Well, what about the detectives that work the street? in plain clothes and stuff like that. You know, I understand, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, I mean, that's just, I, I think something like that needs to be across the board. Do I think it can help? I think it's a start. Um, mm-hmm. I think with, with what we have for technology right now, I think that's the, I think that's one of the, 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 the best things we, you know, we could, we could do right now. And I think it's something that the communities want. And if it would make maybe, this is my point is if it will, instill some more trust in the community that these officers have body cameras on, then to me that's that's money well spent. Yeah, because if it wasn't for um, cell phones nowadays, you know, and people taking the videos, I mean, wow, just the stuff that, you know, they already get away with it anyway, but that just brings so much to light. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with you. I think the body cameras, the body camera thing is, you know, very much needed. But my my concern was, well, what's to stop them from editing out what they don't want seen? You know, um, but you kind of explain that. But even if it's on a hard drive, they still, you know, whoever has that, they can still tamper with it. So then yeah, I no, guess we're back and, at square one. And that's and that's that's true too. You know, I um, you know, being in Florida now, I've talked to so many different uh. I've talked to other, you know, different sheriffs and different, uh, you know, jurisdictions and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, the one, one of the sheriffs I spoke to around here, I asked him his opinion on body cameras once just because uh, I respected the man a lot. And I was curious mm-hmm. what he thought. He was actually for body cameras. The one thing that he wa- that he wanted was he wanted like a, a stronger, I guess, the way he explained it to me, the rules of their, of their county. Now every county in Florida is different. Now we're talking about Florida versus Baltimore is that, you know, once that, 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 that footage is done, that's, you know, that's, that's free to public information. And mm, he wanted mm-hmm. something that, you know, you needed a reason basically for getting the footage out because then he gave the analogy. He said, you know, let's say you go on a domestic where it's not a, a physical domestic, it's just a husband and wife arguing, you know. You get those all the time, you know, things like that. And you get there and the wife is crying, she doesn't have makeup on, you know, the, the husband might be drunk or something like that. And a neighbor finds out about it, sees you go over there, well, what's stopping the neighbor from going over and requesting the footage, you know, for himself just because he wants to embarrass the individual? Oh. Because that's all in the public information. So, again, that, that's something in Florida. I don't know how it would read in exactly, you know, 
in Maryland and stuff like that, but that was something mm-hmm. that he wanted figured out before he instilled body cameras right. in his jurisdiction. And, right. You know, well, that so makes sense. I, I, think, I think that that's something that, you know, like I said, could it, could it be, you know, yeah, and I think, to be honest, man, is I feel the biggest, our biggest issue as police nowadays is the fact that people don't trust us. And the mm. thing is, is that, you know, they don't trust us because of the few, not the many, in my opinion. Some people might disagree mm-hmm. with me on this. Look, after everything I've been through, you know, I still consider myself, you know, pro-police. You know, I've recently met other commissioners and stuff like that out in, you know, in, what, since I've been here in Florida. And, you know, they, I've been told by those guys that, you know, they admire me for what I did. Um, okay. And things of that nature. You know, when I met with Commissioner Batch, you know, he had told me the same thing, but his actions didn't speak that. And then come right. to find out, you know, that he had had the same situation when he was a cop in, in Long Beach, California, where he, you know, he, he, uh, he targeted, you know, people that reported police corruption uh, and, mm. you know, cost those guys their careers and stuff like that, too. So it goes back to something you said, too. It all starts at the top. If you want to right. see, you know, people be, feel free to come forward, you need to have, uh, you know, a commissioner or a chief of police or a sheriff that, you know, will stand behind you and not just say it in the media and say, oh, yeah, I stand behind this individual. How about you show us? Right, right, right. I guess that, that answers my next question. Um, how can we start to bring about change? Um, I think in Baltimore, if you, you know, that's a two-part answer in my opinion. If you're talking about in Baltimore, for one, you know, mm-hmm. A, we need change at the, at the top in the police department, but you're also going to need a change of leadership at, at, at the mayoral position, which, uh-huh. you know, I guess, you know, luckily, I mean, I believe the fact that, you know, uh, uh, Mayor uh, SRB is not running again, I think could could only could only help things, to be honest. Because mm-hmm. a, cha- a change is a... Uh, a change is definitely needed. You know, truth is, we left Commissioner Batson in entirely too long, um, despite, you know, all the violence and stuff like that that happened. When you have months of 40-plus homicides, not including, you know, non-fatal shootings of people and kids and teenagers and, you know, and seniors, citizens and stuff like that, that's unacceptable. And when that starts happening, you need to, you need to make a change. And right. I think it's important that, you know, we have accountability at the top as well. If these things are right. happening and, and Commissioner Bats is going, truth is the mayor should be gone with, with the commissioner because she brought him here over other right. people that were probably more qualified for that position. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. And like you said, um, that change is already, that's going to, that's about to happen because, you know, she did come out and say that she was not running, uh, running again. Um, and then we do have Ms. Uh, Dixon, who is, she jumped back in the race, which a lot of people are very happy about that, because you even shared that under her leadership, you felt, you know, uh, a lot better. The communication between the police department and the mayor's office was a lot better. So, uh, 100%. I'll say, this is two things. I, I served under two administrations, the, you know, Mayor Sheila Dixon and uh, Commissioner Fred Bielfeld administration mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. uh you know srb and uh and uh um, anthony bats administration one thing mm-hmm. as officers that if you ask officers that they will say under you know um mayor dixon and uh and and uh fred bielfeld was our mission was clear for what they wanted okay they knew gotcha. they wanted us going after guys bad guys with guns on the street when we weren't going after bad guys, they wanted us out of our cars, engaging the community, talking with the community, trying to be that officer friendly. 
And what did they mm-hmm. do to help teach us that? They had a training they used to call the Diamond Standard Training, where they used to take people. You did a little bit, you know, maybe a week's worth of actual tactical training. The rest of it was taking you, you know, you were going to community meetings. You were doing things with the kids, you know, the juveniles in the neighborhoods that you that you actually policed in and stuff like that, which was, you know, mm-hmm. it, that, that training was, was, was actually really good. You know, did I agree with every piece of it? No, but, but that training was 80 or 90% good, and it helped instill what we, you know, what they wanted from us as officers. And they'd say, you know, look, mm. this is what I want. Here's some training to kind of help you guys get there. All right, here you go. We're going to put you out there. Under mm-hmm. the SRB and the BATS administration, we didn't know what our data, what they wanted from us day to day. It changed depending mm-hmm. on the media soundbite that, that was going off that day. Mm. And, you know, I could say just the once during that time period, we had direction. And even under Fred Bielfeld, you know, corruption wasn't really tolerated. When you hear the stories about, like, even that old towing scandal that happened under Bielfeld's administration, I mean, you also remember what he did about it. He, that, he had those officers suspended right away. I don't believe my situation would have gotten out of control the way it did if right. he was the commissioner and I reported it at that time. If that rat had been gotcha. placed on my car when when uh, Commissioner Bielfeld was here, I, I personally think two things. I think, A, you know, he would have addressed it and investigated it right then and there and not waited two years like Commissioner Bass did. And I don't mm-hmm. think, and I think the reason, too, would have been I don't think Mayor Dixon would have allowed them to sweep it under the rug or not comment on it like, right. you know, uh, like, like SRB did because something that officers really felt was that, you know, and and I can say this because when I brought you know Mary Dixon to that um, to that ceremony, so many cops came up to her and were so happy that she was coming, uh, that she was there, and they were telling her we want you to come back and whispering to her we want you to come back. And officers I talked to even afterwards, they said you know the the one thing that you know was kind of different from her to um, Stephanie was that you know she Mary Dixon really cared about the community. She cared about making the community better, cared about making the police department better, you know, Mm -hmm. and she wanted to make the change. And people used to say, you know, what we felt as officers, and this was even just told me was, you know, um, Mayor Mayor Blake was more concerned about the SRB brand and more concerned Mm -hmm. about that and not as concerned about the community and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, hopefully, hopefully Baltimore gets the change it needs. And that's, that's something that's really important. Well, maybe you can call, um, uh, Ms. Sheila Dixon, and and just share that with you, with her. Share your thoughts on the program. Um, I'm quite sure that she would love to hear that, and I believe that she really has a great chance of winning uh, the mayor mayoralship again. And maybe she will bring that back um, if more people will step up and say, "Hey, look, remember when you did this? This was great. This helped us out." Because a change needs to happen, and again, it has to start from the top. Um, but let me ask you this, okay? Because uh, we're going to start wrapping it up now, um, what would you tell a, a cop that wants to come forward and do the right thing? What would, Right now, we, we have like, let's say we have like maybe 100 cops listening in. What would you say to them that, you know, they want to come forward and they want to do the right thing? So here's your chance to tell them what you think they should do. Well, I'll tell you that, uh, first of all, this probably, it's going to be the hardest decision you're going to probably make in your life. Um Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be easy, but I guess nothing good that nothing good is easy. Nothing good comes easy. And mm-hmm. 
if you look, you, there's two types of cops out there. There's a cop that just wants to collect the paycheck, and there's a cop, a cop that really wants to do right and do good. Okay, if you saw something or you know you witnessed something that you believe was 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 bad and that egregious, and you and if you're really wrestling with yourself if you should report it or not, deep down inside you're doing that because you know you should report it. And if that's mm-hmm. the case, you know, prepare yourself. You know, prepare your family and stuff like that. But you know, your your job is is supposed to be to the people first. And right. you know, hopefully you have you know good you know have good leadership that'll back you up and things of that nature. And that there's people out there that you know if you need to talk to because that's one of the hardest things is not having somebody to understand. You know, uh, right. you could always reach out to me on Facebook or anything else like that. And any way I could I could help anybody. You know. Even just give advice or just be, uh, you know, uh, a sounding board for you. You know, I'm, I yeah. want to be there to help any way I can. And like I said, if you don't, my thing is this: if you don't do it, you're always going to wrestle with yourself about, you know, should you have done it, and you know, what would have been right. different if that happens. You know, if uh, you see somebody hurt somebody on the street today, you know, just maybe assault them. The next time you can find out somebody passes away, and you don't want that on your conscience. Right. That is so true. And, Joe, I've, when I was researching some information to do your interview, um, I came across a few support groups for whistleblowers. Have you found any yourself? Um, and if so, are there any, you know, uh, good ones that you could suggest? I mean, are they like in, in, in your state, you know, in all different states, or how would they go about finding a support group for whistleblowers? To be to be honest with you, I uh, random people have kind of reached out to me throughout, like, I guess, uh, me, uh, you know, different times I was in the news and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. I, as far as an actual group goes, I haven't, you know, necessarily found a, an actual group with, you know, titled yeah. anything. But uh, certain mm-hmm. people that have, you know, found themselves in similar positions, you know, even Mr. Serpico, like I said, he, uh, he reached out to me. Um, yeah. So... Like I said, the hardest part of the situation was, you know, like I had my my wife, I had my my parents, you know, but it was harder not necessarily having somebody to, I guess, how do I say this, but like I guess uh, that that I, you could give somebody advice on something when you go through it. I can give, if if another cop called me about what they were going through, you know, they came forward, I I could relate to how it feels. You know, when I spoke to, you know, some of the best people I spoke to was, if you look up actually when Commissioner Bass was Commissioner in Long Beach, the whole lobster gate thing, the, those four officers there that, that went through that, that ordeal, mm-hmm. you know, they were four of them. I don't, you know, that when I left the department, they were, you know, they listened to me, they talked to me. We're, we're still friends and they, I'll still bounce things off of them every now and again. When I feel, you know, times get hard and uh, they were there for me. And uh, I think it's, it's being able to find somebody that's been through, that's been through it. And, yeah. you know, they can, yeah. you can relate different feelings you have and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's the, that's the important part. Um, you know, maybe that's something that, that can be looked into, or I can even look into down the line of trying to help somebody like that. I mean, right now I yeah. would just tell people just look for me on Facebook, look for me on Twitter or something like that. And uh, anything yeah. I can do to help anybody, I don't mind doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That is so awesome. Joe, thank you so much. I mean, I, I just can't, Thank you enough for just taking the time um, to come on and share your story with us because I know it it was not easy uh, to go through what you went through. I mean, it it just takes a a minute to wrap your your brain around because on the outside, I mean, as as a citizen, 
you know, we are so disenfranchised by what we see happening all the time. And then you hear people say, well, you know, it's not all cops. There are some good cops out here. Okay, well, yeah, we know that. You know, we I believe that. I believe that there are. But we don't see that. We don't see the good cops. We don't hear anything from the good. We don't hear the cops coming, you know, stepping up to the defense of the person who's getting beat down. We just see other cops standing around watching it happen. So for you to, get, you know, just to put your neck on the line, <laughs> you know, and to step out there and to step up, I mean, I commend you. You know, you need a medal just for that. You and any other um, cop that has come forward. Um, like lately since I, you know, uh, decided to do this, I've seen some stories, you know, now all of a sudden I am starting to see, you know, one here and one there trickle in, but it needs to be more and more, you know what I mean? So no, thank I agree you completely. so much for shedding light. Yeah, you, you've shed some light on the situation um, for us, and I really, really appreciate that. And your wife is wonderful um, because, again, you know, speaking to her, she gave me the from a different uh, perspective of being, you know, the wife and I'm gonna. I'm not even gonna say whistleblower. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say it with the way Frank uh, Serpico says. And I love the terminology when he says lamplighters. He said, yeah. "I really don't like to say whistleblowers. They're lamplighters, you know." And he referenced it to Paul Revere. You know, when Paul Revere was riding, you know, his horse, you know, it was his lamp, and he was alerting, you know, uh, alerting the people, you know, uh, about the, in, you know, the danger that was about to take place. So it's like your lamplighters. You know, and you're shining the light on corrupt, you know, corruptness. Um, and we just thank you for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, having me on your show. I mean, it means meant a lot to me. It was a great experience. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome so much, Joe. And you know what? If you want to hang in there for just another two minutes, um, you can. If not, that's fine too, because I'm just going to wrap this show up. Um, but um, and please tell Nicole I said hi. Uh, for me, and I just think she's amazing too, and she deserves a medal because you know you didn't go through this alone. Um, no, and I not think at there all. Should be Could a have done with better. Yeah, and I think there should be a support group for the families. <laughs> you know, um, they need to be able to talk to somebody too because they're going through it with you. So yeah, the two of you deserve a medal, Dag, on it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're so that's a. Uh... Really kind. And, uh, <laughs> I'm just like I said. I'm you just, know what? Uh huh. So you know, like I said, I feel blessed to have uh, met you and uh, you know be on your show and you know hopefully uh, you know I, look right now everything hasn't turned out the way I wanted. I never want to beat Baltimore, but uh, you know I guess uh, I, all you can do is, is hope that uh, things get better for you. You know, have faith. Well, I'm believing Joe for you and your wife that you're going to be able to come home very soon. I just believe that. I believe that things are going to shift in your favor. And, um, you know, I'm just going to continue to put that positive energy out there for you. And uh, I believe that you're going to be able to come home. And I, and when you do, I'm, we're going to go out. How about that? We're going to go out like and we're it. going to celebrate. Because I just believe I like that good will outwin. I, win, good has to win. Good wins out over evil. And so I'm going to hold on to that hope. And um, we're going to continue to fight and, and just to see, you know, how far we can take this thing, okay? You're not alone. All right, man. 
Thank you, All right, thank so much. you so much. <laughs> All right. That was Joe Crystal, ladies and gentlemen, um, and he's such a sweetheart, and we just thank him over and over and over again for coming on uh, and talking with us. And as you can see, you know, it was not easy uh, what he did um, coming forth, you know, uh, telling the truth and being, you know, outcasted within an organization that he believed in. And, you know, since a child he wanted to become a cop. And he wanted to become a cop, you know, not for the glorification of becoming a cop, but because he cares about people. Um, so, again, I just, you know, I commend him for that. We come to the portion of the show where we're getting ready to wrap up, but I want to leave you with this. Ethos, the word ethos, E-T-H-O-S, means the characteristic spirit of a culture, era, or community as manifested in its beliefs and aspirations. In his book, The Warrior Ethos, Stephen Pressfield states, we are all warriors. Each of us struggles every day to define and defend our sense of purpose and integrity, to justify our existence on the planet, and to understand, if only within our own hearts, who we are and what we believe in. Do we fight by a code? If so, what is it? What is the warrior ethos? Where did it come from? What form does it take today? How do we and how can we use it and be true to it in our eternal, internal and external lives? Does a fighting man require a flag or a cause to claim a code of honor? Or does a warrior ethos arise spontaneously, called forth by necessity and the needs of the human heart? Is honor coded into our genes? What does honor consist of in an age when the concept seems almost abandoned by society at large, at least in the West? We all fight wars in our work, within our families, and abroad in the wider world. Each of us struggles every day to define and defend our sense of purpose and integrity, to justify our existence on the planet, and to understand, if only within our own hearts, who we are and what we believe in. We are all warriors. Do we fight by a code? If so, what is it? What is the warrior ethos? How do we and how can we use it and be true to it in our internal and external lives? That's something to think about. That concludes our show for this evening. I want to thank everyone for tuning in with us. And a shout-out to my family, who are always loving and supporting me, and also to my friends and colleagues in all of my social networking sites. Once again, a big thank you to Joe Crystal for taking the time to share a big part of your journey and your wisdom with us. We are eternally grateful for you because we know that knowledge is power, and when we know better, we do better. Also, don't forget to stop by my website, yourdestinyawaits.net, to get some extra motivation and inspiration. And like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash, forward slash a date with destiny 101 and follow us on Twitter at least L-Y-S-E 101. We will be back on Monday, September the 28th at 5.30 Eastern Standard Time. So your mission, ladies and gentlemen, if you choose to accept it, is take the necessary time to do a true self-evaluation. Seek God and learn how to love yourself first, because after all, you owe it to yourself to know yourself. 
Once again, I'm Lisa M. Saunders, and thank you for tuning in to Blog Talk Radio's A Date with Destiny. Peace and abundant blessings, everyone. Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.